Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, I recently had the honor of doing a live event in Bryan Park in New York City with best-selling authors Jody Pico and Samantha Van Leer. They happen to also be mother and daughter, and together they wrote a bestseller called Between the Lines, which was a YA novel that recently was adapted into a musical, and that musical is taking New York City by storm how the entire process happened. Well, we're going to break it down. Welcome, Jody and Samantha, to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Between the Lines became Jody Pico's first young adult novel and Samantha Van Leer's first published work when it was released in 2012. The book was a number one New York Times bestseller, a publisher's weekly bestseller, and it was nominated for the Young Adult Library Services Association's 2013 Top 10 Teen Award. Now the duo's work is entering a new chapter with the premiere of the musical adaptation at Second Stage's Tony Kaiser Theater here in New York City. It starts in just a few weeks, so I would like all of us to welcome the dynamic duo, the mother-daughter writing team, Jody Pico and Sammy Van Leer, to the Broadway book series here at Bryan Park. Thank you. What's so amazing is when I did a deep dive into these two incredible humans, uh, when this book first came out, Samantha, who goes by Sammy or Thor, whatever you want to call her, um, was in fact like a 15-year-old teenager. And so to see you now, after having watched so many of those interviews with the two of you when the book first came out, it's kind of amazing for us to get to see your adventure trajectory narrative as um, now an adult yeah. book now writer. Yeah, 16. It's great. Now she's 16. <laughs> um, she so cleans up great. She, yeah. You both clean up great. <laughs> I guess I want to start. Jody has written, how many books have you written at this point? Like 25. 25 books. Yeah. Like this woman writes a book a year. It's an extraordinary thing. <laughs> um, all of them are on the New York Times bestseller list. They are written, they, are, they have been translated into every language around the globe. And you have grown up in a household with someone who probably had written, you know, 25 books before the two of you decided to write together. Um, many people who have parents who are unbelievably successful at their chosen art um, have an inkling that they want to do it, but often shy away from it because it's so overwhelming to sort of imagine not the doing, but it not being received in the way that perhaps their mother's 
um, legacy, which has existed. So first of all, I don't even care if this was the worst book ever, which by the way, it's the best book ever. But the idea that you were like, I have a burning fire inside of me and I'm gonna be brave enough to go, I don't care who my mother is, I, I wanna do this. And I just have to say like, what a beautiful, incredible thing to honor the artist within you and not to shy away from who you are because someone in your family has already done it. So first of all, that's amazing. <laughs> the legend goes that you were on a book tour <laughs> in LA, sitting in traffic probably, yep, if you were in exactly. LA, yep. and you got a call from your then, how old were you at the time? 13. 13-year-old 13. Yeah. 13 yeah. daughter. Yeah. Um, what grade were you in when you were 13? Eighth. Eighth, Eighth grade. <laughs> Her middle school daughter with an idea. Yeah. Um, is that something that had ever happened before where you called her with an idea for a book? Oh yeah, I was always writing even probably before I could write words. Yeah. I was creating stories. Hieroglyphics. <laughs> no, no, she used to take like her stuffed animals and she would never just play stuffed animals. She would play, this dog is stuck in an alpine you know, snowstorm and this cat has to go climb the Matterhorn to go rescue. It was like stuff all over the house. Elaborate, just, yeah, great narratives, right. Yeah. And even ironically, now as an author you would think that I was someone who was obsessed with books myself and also considering the character of Delilah but reading was always something that I actually did struggle with and my mom always worked really hard to try to find me books that I would be interested in and keep reading and it really was for me I would so much rather tell my own story than read someone else's and so that idea of storytelling was just as you said, almost in the blood, ingrained in me. It was just something that I loved to do. And so I had written tons of little stories and narratives from throughout my whole childhood. But this was the first one that when I shared the idea with my mom, she really insisted and demanded. She was like, this has to become something really real. It has to go beyond, you know, my journal or my little Word document on my computer. But this is something that the world should see and this is the story that should be heard and so that's where she got very invested <laughs> well it was you know what she was pitching me was the idea that of falling in love with um, a character mm -hmm. and this is something every person has done you have read something and have fallen for a character and and I love that she as a, a young girl was talking about that because I felt like all the moms out there also have felt that I'm still waiting for Mr. Darcy. He could be here. Do not ruin this for me. And, you know, honestly, it's like... What if he showed up right now? I would die. Today was I the day. I would die. My yeah. husband would be really mad. I would die. No, no, no. That's a, that is a hall pass, don't you think? That would be the right. one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but honestly, it's like, it seemed like such a universal theme to write about. And the thing that, that was fun was that when I was in college, I was writing short stories, and I had an amazing mentor named Mary Morris who helped me learn how to structure a novel. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I could do that for Sam. I knew I could teach her how you take like something that's like juggling oranges and suddenly start juggling elephants. But one thing that I refused to do was write the book for her. So we literally would sit side by side in my office and we would type, we take turns typing, we spoke every word out loud. Half the time you gave up and curled up in a comforter on the floor 
and was like, you know, underneath the comforter, muffled words would come out of the comforter as <laughs> she was lying there. I mean, she was very much a teenager. I was also like the original work from home scenario. Yes. Everyone <laughs> now has done this themselves. It's a little more normalized. But, you know, we did it based on her breaks, too. She was she had a, a day job. She was going to school. So we wrote during the summers. Um, and then when we wrote the sequel to Between the Lions, she was already in college. And so the only time that we could actually be together and writing was from 10 to 12 at night. And we did it by speakerphone. And that was how we went. We did the sequel together. So when you talk about sort of, uh, here's the idea, you have a pretty strong picture in your head of of what you want to happen, have happen in this book. And then you talk about sort of structure can be taught. So did you guys outline the book and sort of go through every chapter? What would happen? What, what, can you take us Didn't through the Didn't we have the, the last line? Yeah. What so is the last actually, line of this And book? I will <laughs> say, I remember that when I told my mom about this idea, she told me, start writing down characters and how you picture them and what they're all like. And I remember creating a document where I thought of all you know the different characters and this is how I would see them almost like an introduction to for my mom to this idea of this world that was in my head right and I know that when we sat down the very first thing I said was I know I know how this ends and it's funny because I think with almost everything that I write I, it's backwards and I know I think it's very similar for my mom as well I know exactly how it's going to end and then the work comes after of how do we get to the end and so i the very first scene we wrote was the end of the book i think we what we did was we had a word document and we put the last line in and we kept writing towards that last line Yeah. yeah when you say that there weren't books that you were really interested in that you were more interesting in 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 writing them um what what is it about this story that you felt like, I want to take this, I'm willing to do the work, so much so that there's a sequel to the book, um, Off the Page, that's the next one, correct? So there will be a musical of that after... No, no, we actually, one of the first things we had to do was realize, you know, Broadway musicals don't get sequels for the most part. Yeah. So we had to figure out how to incorporate both stories into one. And um, it's been really fun working with Tim McDonald, who is our book writer for the show, to uh, figure out how do you have a satisfying ending for everyone who has seen, who's read the original book and is going to be seeing this musical, how do you create a new ending but that has the same exact feeling? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and I'll say, too, that's the kind of treat of it. So if you have read Between the Lines, if you had read off the page and mm-hmm. enjoyed that, this is like getting a third book in the series because yeah. it's going to be the story you love, the characters you adore, those stayed the same, but it is different. Yeah. The focus of the narration is different. The characters have adapted into something unique and that matches our world around us they're more almost more complex in a sense and you get to know them better especially seeing them in person on stage when you think of of side characters like Jules the best friend or Frump the other best friend you get glances of them in a story because it's through someone else's eyes. But when you're sitting in the theater and you're watching the whole story in front of you, you're not just looking through Prince Oliver's eyes, you're not just looking through Delilah's. So you get to kind of meet these characters in a way that you didn't get to when you read the books. 
when you say that you guys sat side by side, sat side by side, literally, um, are you then? So you have the ending, and then we're going to get to the the birth of this musical too. And that process is so different, obviously, mm-hmm. than what this process was. Um, are you guys doing dialogue to each other, yes. like sort of acting yeah. it out? Oh yeah, it really was like line by line yeah. where one of us would say something and it was like a game of Mad Libs where the next person would finish the sentence and start the next one. And it's maybe genetic, yes. <laughs> maybe just a weird chance that we work well together, <laughs> but we were able to almost combine into a single voice and mind where both of us were so clearly seeing the, the same scene happening in yeah. front of us. There'd be moments where I'd be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going, I'm going, I know what I want to say. And she'd be saying the exact same thing. How amazing that during the teen years, which Mm -hmm. can often be really not symbiotic in the way that you're describing, (laughs) and it sounds like there were still real teen parent moments, albeit you under a comforter or just whatever feelings you were having towards your mother, not as author to author. Um, How incredible that you were able to sustain this working relationship and put that stuff aside or put it into the work, in Delilah and her mom. And I have to say, one one shout out that I really want to give um, about the musical, one of the reasons I am most proud of this musical is um, I will ask everyone in the audience to think of five musicals that show an honest relationship between a mother and a daughter. We will be here until the end of time because you will not be able to find them. Most stories that make it to Broadway are through the, the gaze of a man. Harry. Yeah, right. I mean, so like <laughs> gypsy, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but there's hairspray. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's I will, I'll take hairspray. That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But you're never going to get to five. No. And the point is that most, most um, musicals do not show a young girl's coming of age. I mean, Hairspray yeah. is an anomaly, actually. Yeah. Um, and I'm so incredibly proud of this show because it is allowing young women and mothers and daughters to come and see their own lives and feelings and hearts reflected on the stage, and we don't get to see that enough. What do you guys think is going on now in the world of reading? Because everyone is walking around with this phone, uh-huh. or and and everything is yeah. sound bites, and everything is like, why read the book? Someone on TikTok explained the book to me. Um, <laughs> how do you account for the fact uh, that this book is so widely read? Your books, both of yours collectively, are so. What uh, what is the special sauce that is keeping readers coming back over and over to the literature you guys write? Because this is a, a battle that many of us are fighting to keep our kids engaged in actual books, to hold a book in their hand. Well, one of the special things that we did, because this was actually at the time that we were writing it, was the big boom of ebooks. Mm-hmm. And I mean, now we're even beyond that, like you said, with videos and TikTok and podcasts and everything. And so we really <coughs> thought about how how do you get someone to buy a physical book? What's mm. the point? What's the difference? Oh, right. And what we did was we said, well, we're writing a fairy tale. One of the greatest things of old books is the illustrations, those beautiful, beautiful drawings. That's why people covet these older historic books. Right. Yeah. That's why they're in libraries and you have to go with the special gloves on to look at them because of that work of art inside of it. So 
our books include pictures from the fairy tale Oliver is from, these beautiful colored in illustrations, as well as these black and white silhouettes where we bring to life the characters. They look like they're crawling up the page at you mm -hmm. throughout the chapters. The journey from book to musical. So the best way that I can describe this is that after we published the books, I didn't feel like we were done. I really felt like the books sang. And I know that sounds really weird, but it just seemed to me like it should be a musical. And through a series of very bizarre connections um, through Dartmouth College, which is in the town where we live, or where we used to live together, she no longer lives there. The mom, <laughs> mom still lives where there. Where mom still Daughter lives, yeah. Daughter does not. Yeah. Um, I, because of Dartmouth College, I had actually met Daryl Roth, who is, of course, an esteemed and amazing producer. And we had connected over um, other books, and I wrote her and I said, I, I don't know how to start turning this into a musical. Can you tell me what to do? And she very much mentored me through the process and you know explained, well, the first thing you need to do is find some songwriters. And uh, I was told that Alan Menken would write my musical and it would cost me a fortune and he would get to it in the year 2040. So maybe I didn't want to start there. And I really wanted young female songwriters. Yeah. I did not know that they don't exist. Uh, it's very, very hard to find women in uh, in theater composing and two women is like having two unicorns in the same room. So I actually had connected with um, the head of the BMI workshop, which is where a lot of young composers come through, and also with Bobby Lopez of Book of Mormon and Frozen, who had connected with uh, Sammy's brother, who was acting in one of his shows at Yale. And they both came up with the same name which is Samsel Anderson, Elisa Samsel and Kate Anderson. Uh, and they said, this is right up their alley. I think that's, that's what you want. And so I met with Kate and Elisa. I sent them an email. We actually used to listen to their demos on their website as treats. Like when we finished a chapter, we would let ourselves listen to one Are of their demos. Are you serious? Yeah, because they were incredible. so funny and catchy. And, you know, these, these, these young women are astoundingly talented and... Um, and sweet as could be, and humble and funny. And uh, I actually met with them. They came to me with a copy of Between the Lines that was completely marked out with highlighter, saying, this could be a song, this could be a song, this could be a song. And we wound up hiring them. The three, sh the three songs that they wrote on spec for the show to get the job are still in the show, which is very rare, but also tells you how, how much they got the material, you know? Um, on the strength of their songs for Between the Lines, they were hired by Disney. That's how good they are. And they are also the staff writers now for Central Park on Apple TV. And one of the things I'm most excited about, again, for this musical, is that this is their theatrical debut in New York. And you are all going to be so obsessed because every morning I wake up and I go, which one of the songs is in my head today? We can't stop singing them. And you won't be able to. Will you say their names really slowly yes. and clearly one more time? It is Elisa Samsell and Kate Anderson. You heard it here first, <laughs> but you will remember them. Yeah. They're amazing. Well, first of all, the musical starts June 14th. 14th. First preview in the 14th. Okay. Yep. So I know you're all excited to get to ask your questions. So, Susie, you have a microphone. <laughs> so there are two microphones available. Um, 
I'm going to open the floor up to questions and just raise your hand. They'll bring a mic. Keep the mic really close to your mouth so that we can hear you. Hi. Hi. Um, so I'm really intrigued by adaptations and how you bring like a film to a musical, a book yes. to a musical, a poem to a musical. Um, I, I see, I'm trying to see like every musical that's on right now. Um, <laughs> and I'm really curious. I write music and um, interested how you choose what becomes a song like you said they were highlighting through it and I'm sure you were a big part of the process so how do you decide what scenes or what aspects of the musical become a song so from what I've learned and I'm I'm still like a baby librettist and um, when we were working with Tim McDonald and we were working with Kate and Elisa it's very much the the feeling is very much best idea wins but what we usually do is go through the source material and say this feels like a song this feels like a song what a lot of people don't know I sure didn't know this is that whoever writes the libretto is also the one who organizes where the songs go and when they go and so um, there's a pace to a musical like you know you don't really want to go for any more than like five pages of dialogue straight dialogue before you got another good song in there and so you're always kind of thinking about pace when you are organizing the story as a whole um, but for us uh, I mean this was particularly easy because we I honestly don't think there were there were very few times that the girl said oh this has to be a song and we were like no it does not I can think of one time that they made a misstep and the song was cut because it wasn't good enough you know but most of the time, the things, the moments that we wanted to musicalize, uh, we were on the same page as. And what I think the other kind of rule of thumb is, if you can get emotion across in the music, it's always going to be better than doing it in dialogue. Yeah, I was going to say, the, I think the parts that match for our musical verse in the book, what's a song versus what's words, is when you're reading the book, the parts where your heart kind of soars for a minute, that's where you're going to hear singing mm -hmm. because the parts where like your body would kind of sing where you're so happy yeah. I'm thinking about there's just like the scene kind of like in the sections that we read where she first talks to Oliver where she falls in love with Oliver it's an amazing song where she's skipping down the halls as if no one else exists and she's singing about this love of her life and it's that kind of you know first love that everyone has when they're younger where you're in bed and you're like literally squealing to yourself because you're just so excited you can't contain it and it's the same with the opposite emotion as well those parts where you're so sad and crushed that's a song. So it's really where the peaks of emotion are. Yeah. Um, the song she's talking about is called Talking to Oliver. And it's sort of a, a Delilah's daydream. And um, I said, if you can watch that in the musical and not have a smile on your face, you are Hitler. You I have just, to, yeah. like, literally physically just, restrain yeah. yourself yeah, from you're skipping. Just like, it's just such yeah. a great song. But also, the other thing that I find interesting is that sometimes moments of great emotion, like you said, negative emotion or intense emotion are dialogue songs. So there's a really great song called I'm Not Through where Delilah and Grace, her mom, have a tremendous fight in song. And it's very powerful because of the way that the composing team structured it so that they are almost singing over each other in places because they're not listening to each other. And um, it's, it's just, it's astounding when a song can do the work of what we're used to doing in dialogue in books because it is much more graceful for heavy lifting. I just want to shout out Julia Murney who played Elphaba in Wicked on Broadway who has one of the most incredible voices 
on the planet and is one yes. of the most glorious actresses is playing the mom yes, she's in Grace. this musical. And for that reason alone, yeah. uh, the whole cast is pretty extraordinary. But she yeah. to have someone like that sort of yeah. as the parent of your show on stage, yes. that whole cast is in great, yeah. it, you know, will be so protected by her. Yeah. And um, no, she's great. incredible. Anybody else? Hi, thanks. That was a perfect segue because my question is about casting. Great. So you've created characters, and I'm always kind of curious. It's a little bit of the chicken and the egg when you see a musical that is an adaptation of how much you looked to cast somebody to match the character you created, or did you find particular actors and then they maybe changed it? I mean, because you have this incredible cast, and mm -hmm. some of them maybe took you in a different direction, or, or how... I think this is one of my absolute favorite things about turning the books into a musical is that when you write a book as an author, especially when you write it at 13 years old, it's stuck in the time that it was published. And you don't really get to go to your publishers 10 years later and say, can I update this? I feel like this character could be different. So having when you make an adaptation, when you're it's a movie, when it's a musical, whatever, it's your chance to rewrite. And so for us, we've gone to make our characters so much richer. And things that now I look back and I wish that we had done in our books, the representation I wish that we had, the things I want our readership and now our viewership to be able to see. I want everyone to walk into that theater and see themselves on that stage in some way. I want them to be able to connect. And so that was this opportunity that we got. We got to rewrite our characters to reflect the actual world around us, the actual people who are going to be walking into our theater and enjoying this musical, to make sure that everyone feels represented and seen in this story. Um, a really great example of that is that uh, the character of Jules comes into the story a little differently in the musical. Um, Delilah is not best friends with her at the beginning. She almost distances herself from Jules, and eventually they become very good friends. But uh, Jules was rewritten to be a non-binary character. And we did that because of two things. First, representation matters very much, and um, gender um, orientation and representation is something that I think speaks to a lot of young people right now. Um, but also, the whole theme of Between the Lines is live the story you want if it's not the story you're in. And one of the beautiful things about Jules's character is that they are so confident and sure that just because we're used to gender being in boxes doesn't mean we can't break the boxes. And so it's the perfect representation of that motto, you know? And so to be able to, to reinvent that character and then to have this incredible actor, Ren Rivera, they're amazing and... I, you're just you're gonna fall in love with them. Um, it's just really fun to be able to tweak things that were in the book to, like Sammy said, make the world a more diverse and representative place on a stage. And that being said, too, the importance of now, if we're diversifying our characters, recognizing that my mother and I are both cisgender and also white women, that our voices, we should not be writing lines and uh, descriptions for characters that are not 
true to us. And so I know that we're working very closely with Ren as well to make sure that we are building an authentic character, that the representation that we're creating is real and true because we want to make sure that we are actually portraying the truth of a non-binary character, we're portraying the truth of all of our characters. And so we do take in great consideration comments from our cast as well and how they would see or hear the characters speak in their own mind. But also I have to say casting is the most fun because like really when you just sit in a chair and have like 30 hot guys sing at you for you know hours that end what's not to like right? First of all, I'm so excited about the musical. It's going to be Yay. phenomenal. I'm incredible. And Julie Murney, wow, I did not know that was cast. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, I want to ask you a quick question about world building. So you built this great world in the book, mm -hmm. and then you get to see it visualized and yes. realized on stage for set design. Yes. I'd love it if you'd talk a little bit about your experience of seeing that happen, and also if you had any input in set design and how things were going to go, what kind of input did you have? Well, the answer is none, so th that's really easy. But luckily, we have a, an amazing set designer, Tobin Ost, who's been with us now. This is an eight-year journey for Between the Lines, so um, he's been working on the set through all many of our iterations since we first made it 3D in Kansas City. And um, our director is Jeff Calhoun from Newsies. Um, so he kind of knows what he's doing. And I have to say that... It was so fun the first time that Jeff staged this in Kansas City, which was our out-of-town tryout, um, to see how his brain worked and how he could take what was on the page and make it visual. Um, just, w I don't want to ruin it because the way that he has created both a fairy tale world and a literal world on stage is that's the big question, right? We're not. We're not in a movie. We can't do special effects. So how is he going to convince you that this tiny little box of a stage at the Tony Kaiser Theater is both a book, inside a book, and a real world? And he has come up with a very, very brilliant way of doing it. Um, and it's fun and funny and clever, and you're just going to have to come see it. I'm not going to tell you. So. <laughs> okay, we have time for one more. All right, it'll be mine then. Yes, okay. Um, I, is that okay? Does anyone <laughs> else have a question? I don't want to be rude. Okay. So you, I would love to just hear a little bit. You know, many shows, as you guys know, were set to go into production, and then COVID struck, and on March 12th of 2020, 20. Um, everything shut down, and almost you know, not everything was able to come back. So where were you guys in the process of bringing us this beautiful show when Governor Cuomo shut down theaters in New York? We're so close, so <laughs> close. We were two weeks away from starting rehearsals. And I have never, I have never been more devastated in my life. I'm because sure. you know, theater's a long game. And it was, we'd put seven years into it, and this was it. We finally made it to New York. Yeah. Wow, we were crossing a finish line. Oh, oh no, you're not. And I remember the day that I had all, because I was, you know, moving here for six weeks from New Hampshire, and so I had all this stuff that I was packing up to take, and I just, like, very quietly put it all away, because mm -hmm. I realized it wasn't happening. Right. Um, it's really a testament to Daryl Roth, 
who has always believed so fiercely in telling the story that we do have a theater now, that we're actually back at the theater we were supposed to be in, you know, at Second Stage. It's a great theater. It's where, you know, Dear Evan Hansen, Next to Normal started. That feels like some pretty good karma. And, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful to her for not giving up. Uh, and I think that's really reflected right now in the company. We came here from rehearsal because it's all going on right now. And, you know, in the room there, when we first got there, the utter joy of being together, of telling this story, which really is in a way even better suited post pandemic than it was prior. This show is a joy spot. This show is going to make you laugh a lot. It's going to tug on your heartstrings and you will cry twice. <laughs> and and it, is, um, it is the kind of show you will leave humming the songs and you will leave feeling better than you did when you walked into the theater because it leaves you feeling empowered that you too can make a difference in your own life. If you don't like what's going on, you can rewrite your own narrative. And who in the last two years has not wanted to do that? Well, maybe three times because I'm I'm crying right now. Um, will you all join me in thanking Jody Pico and Samantha Van Leer for their time today, their artistry, for the show we're going to get to see and cry two times or more if we feel like it and well, laugh just as much. And thank you all for being here today. There are more in this Broadway book series, but if you go to the Bryan Park website, the unbelievable amount of programming that goes on in this beautiful park every day, it will uplift your spirits. And for me, my podcast, everything I do, it's about community and, and growing a community of people who really care about each other. And all of you today are part of that. And thank you for being here and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for thank coming. You. <laughs>One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you to John Zaytoon, who is the talent coordinator for this episode. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.